With that, uh, let me turn it over to the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legislative Affairs, a super friend, a super lawyer, uh, and somebody who uh, I think probably uh, holds the principles of the Federalist Society and the values that uh, we've been talking about uh, as dear to, uh, to the things he believes in as anybody does. and. Beyond that is one of the people that, uh, in terms of the ones I've come across, that can articulate his positions and his views as clearly and as eloquently as anybody around. John Bolton. Uh, thank you very much, Brad. Being uh, Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs has always been a dubious distinction at best. Uh, and I must say it's, uh, it's heartening to appear before a large group of people who share the principles of the Federalist Society because the large groups that I normally appear before certainly do not. Uh, our topic is uh, insider trading and, uh, and mergers, as Brad has said. Uh, we have four very distinguished panelists uh, up here. Uh, we hope to keep our respective remarks fairly brief to encourage you and the audience to ask uh, questions and to get an interchange going. I think that is the principal difference between what we are, a workshop, and what everybody else has been, a panel. Uh, recent well-publicized cases of insider trading by prominent Wall Street arbitrageurs, investment bankers, and lawyers have drawn substantial public and congressional attention to the regulation of financial information. Similarly, large corporate mergers and acquisitions have fueled discussion of the appropriate scope of our securities and antitrust statutes. Most of the vocal liberal sentiment in Congress and among Galbraithian economists uh, tends to support further tightening of the existing statutory regimes. There are, for example, proposals to restrict even more stringently permissible activities in the securities markets to make hostile corporate takeovers more difficult and to subject mergers of all sorts to greater scrutiny. Uh, these proposals all derive from a common intellectual source, the view that markets cannot be left to function on their own and that government regulation, intervention, or prohibition leads to more desirable outcomes. At the crasser political level, uh, these proposals reveal a fundamental distrust of the market system, appealing to those who believe that the system has given them a raw deal. Uh, indeed, the real importance of raw deal politics may be whether the Reagan deregulatory agenda is completed, halted, or rolled back. This agenda promises to be a principal battlefield in the new Congress because it enables legislators to practice the politics of resentment without a visible short-term effect on the federal budget. A reputation for compassion and effectiveness can seemingly be bought on the cheap by legislation, though it costs the economy scores of billions of dollars in lost jobs and growth, doesn't add a, pen a penny to the federal budget deficit. Uh, not surprisingly, then, we can expect a great deal of sound and fury from the born-again regulators. Uh, it is also unsurprising, given the dominant biases in Washington media and political circles, that little attention has been paid to those who view our progress in deregulation so far as little more than a technical correction in the existing regulatory framework. These mega deregulators believe, for example, that changes in policy at the Securities and Exchange Commission over the past six years, while useful, are marginal at best. 
One of our panelists, Dean Henry Manny, has argued that far from prosecuting those who trade on insider information, we should regard them as performing a number of useful functions for the financial markets. He and a growing number of scholars suggest that some forms of insider trading increases efficiency by adjusting stock prices more quickly to actual economic values. It is also said that such trading is an efficient way to reward entrepreneurial employees. Experts point out that ultimately, overzealous enforcement of the laws governing insider trading will undermine the development of innovative forms of public financing, such as junk bonds, needed to compete by American corporations. The United States is one of the only industrialized countries which prohibits insider trading. Indeed, there are those within the Reagan administration who believe that Congress could improve American competitive, competitiveness internationally by adopting Dean Manny's recommendations and repealing insider trading laws. Others of the mega free marketers believe that the Reagan administration's antitrust reform package is insufficient and that wholesale repeal of, of the major antitrust statutes is the only recourse. While some adopt this view on efficiency grounds, others argue from first principles that there is simply no legitimate basis for restricting business conduct that does not involve force or fraud narrowly defined. Another school of thought promotes still further uh, deregulation in the mergers and acquisitions area generally. They want both federal and state deregulation on efficiency grounds, viewing the market for corporate control as one of the few effective checks on our much dreaded and much discussed corpocracy. Rather than adopt a federal corporation law, leading academics have long recognized the need to defer to the states in the area of corporate law, including rules governing how corporations are bought and sold. As Judge Ralph Winter has convincingly demonstrated, uh, the state serves 50 separate crucibles in which the corporate law most favorable to society can develop. Our panel today covers a range of diverse opinions on these controversial subjects. Our main purpose will be to analyze whether federal intervention of the kinds now being discussed benefits anyone other than politicians, and if so, how much is enough? Uh, the first uh, member of the panel to speak will be Dean Henry Manny of the George Mason Law School. Dean Manny. Thank you, John. I was uh, expecting to buy 25 minutes of your time, and I was only sold 15 minutes. And you're the losers because I'm cutting out all the insider trading jokes. <laughs> the subject, of course, has been around for quite a while now, not nearly as long as people think. It actually surfaced in, uh, oh, the mid-1960s as part, I believe, of a very careful uh, campaign. And as we shall see, one that was orchestrated not simply by politicians. Uh, there are other real interests involved in how these laws are enforced, and this is a matter that uh, is too little noticed in public coverage of the issue. Since it first came on the scene, largely as an invention of the SEC, not, I might add, as an act of Congress, uh, consequently as an aside, I don't urge repeal of uh, the laws against insider trading because I don't even think we have valid laws against insider trading, at least uh, of this kind. Uh, I urge repeal of the basic law that set up the SEC in the first place. <laughs> The notion of insider trading as an evil matter, uh, first, as they say, was advanced by the SEC with an enormous amount of moral posturing. Now, this has led a number of people to conclude that this is an easy target for the SEC. 
particularly in an era of uh, ostensible deregulation, that it seemed to be a rather harmless uh, uh, target, one that, uh, even if it was wrong, didn't do a great deal of harm, uh, that put the agency on the side of the angels, and took the pressure off to do anything else. Uh, and indeed, that is perhaps not an unfair description, at least uh, objectively speaking, of what the SEC in the last six years has been about. However, last November, all bets were off. Everything changed in this field. It ceased to be just a silly matter of uh, moral posturing and economic double talk, and all of a sudden assumed enormous consequences that it had not had before. Now, before I get to that, I'm going to save that as my uh, punchline, so to speak, uh, and hope to keep more of the audience here. I want to review very briefly, in almost a listing fashion, unfortunately, and it's unfortunate because there's some tantalizing questions uh, in this list, what it is that is uh, argued by the SEC and uh, defenders of their position uh, that's wrong with insider trading, and at the same time, uh, simply a listing, uh, which you already had some introduction to, uh, as to the arguments against enforcement rules. Now, I should say, notice that I didn't say that we should have a law absolutely allowing every corporation to have its uh, executives engage in insider trading. That's a far different thing. That would be as coercive to those that didn't want to do it as the opposite. Obviously, the right solution is no legislation one way or the other and let uh, the market forces determine which of these rules really should survive by demonstrating which is best for the investors. The basic argument that uh, everyone assumed was correct back in the 1960s was that immediately upon, let's say, the purchase of shares by someone with insider trading, the seller was harmed. Well, I wrote a book uh, back at that time, one of the central theses of which was that, uh, wait a minute, there's no harm to anyone. Uh, this is not a zero-sum game in which you're transferring a specific amount of wealth. There's an increase in the wealth, and you have to demonstrate that somehow an expectation of the person selling the shares was defeated in order to show that there was any loss. Clearly, that's not true. I'm very pleased to say that today, in most audience, most uh, uh, panels on this subject, you don't even hear this argument any longer. Uh, the argument has seeped through to most uh, careful observers of this area that the act of trading on information simply cannot be taken in itself to harm the other party to the uh, transaction. The next argument was that the insider trading was distorting the market, uh, that it was causing the insiders to manipulate the flow of information so that uh, you were getting a less efficient stock market in the sense of prices at any given moment not as accurately reflecting the realities. Well, of course, uh, there have now been uh, literally hundreds of empirical studies testing the proposition that I first introduced that uh, John mentioned that 
far from doing that, it's exactly the opposite. That this is one of the forces that will always push the price of a company stock in the correct direction. Correct meaning uh, accurately and sensitively reflecting the uh, underlying realities of the situation. Next, there was an argument that uh, somehow this was a violation of fiduciary duties by insiders to do. Well, that's always a bankrupt legal argument when it's offered ex, ex post, that is after the fact. Clearly, as in any case of an argument about fiduciary duty, one has to resolve in, in the first place that this should be something covered by what we call fiduciary duty and therefore an implied uh, provision of the employment contract. Nothing of the sort was true. Prior to the SEC's uh, move really in the Texas Gulf Sulphur case in I think 1967, I don't believe any lawyer could have uh, survived a malpractice action if he had advised a client that there was a, a rule against insider trading at that time. That case created the rule, though it had been alleged to exist earlier in uh, one administrative action by the SEC. Uh, next, the court, uh, the uh, SEC, as I indicated, has argued that it is a statutory violation or at least a violation of a rule of the SEC that is promulgated pursuant to Section 10B of the Securities Act of 1934. Well, there has been some of the most uh, specious kind of uh, sophistical lawyering about that issue. Uh, the moral claim, however, was so strong that even one of the great judges on this, while acknowledging the weakness of the argument. This is Henry Friendly in his concurring opinion in the Texas Gulf Sulphur case. He said this is passing strange. He said here we have what he recognized as perhaps the most serious change in substantive corporation law that had come about in many years. There were no hearings. There was no uh, rulemaking proceeding. There was nothing. Where did they get it from? Well, they had another rule hanging around that was sort of a little bit like the ten, not even like the Sermon on the Mount. It said, do good and uh, things like that. And they said, the SEC said, that that must mean that insider trading is wrong. Uh, it fell under the other fraudulent behavior uh, activity. And that's, of course, why it was necessary early on for them to argue that people were harmed because you couldn't have anything looking like fraud if no one was harmed. Now, that's all forgotten. Uh, that, that history, uh, the fact that it was based on a completely specious argument and that uh, there was, I think, a clear violation of both pre- and post-Administrative Procedure Act in this thing makes no difference. Uh, the fact that the world has turned against all the old arguments made no difference. The SEC came up with a new argument. Uh, they said, we're really going after the cases in which someone has misappropriated information. Uh, that they weren't entitled to this information, uh, a clear case uh, of that, uh, two recent examples. One, uh, Mr. Winans, the column writer for the Wall Street Journal, who used information that he took in the course of his work, also a specific and explicit violation of his employment contract. Uh, the other, the Boski matter, in which Mr. Boski uh, has pleaded guilty to uh, 
paying money to Mr. Levine to give information that Levine got as an employee of uh, Drexel Burnham. The, uh, uh, as, as the response to that I've never seen uh, quite so well done, and I commend it to all of you. A dissenting opinion in the uh, Second Circuit Court of U.S. Court of Appeals case by Judge Miners uh, that I hope will carry the day in the Supreme Court. And in fact, I'll be rather surprised if it doesn't. The SEC had no business in that action. It was not insider trading, even of the variety that had uh, traditionally been covered. If it was, as it it certainly uh, was some kind of bad action to steal something of value from an employ employer, but uh, that has never been grounds for federal jurisdiction by the SEC, and I don't think should have been here. Well, then the, the SEC falls back on still another argument. Here it gets, uh, it gets almost to the point of an argument that can't be proved. Uh, and therefore uh, it's a little more difficult to deal with. But this one, strangely enough, has been uh, responded to. And that is that if we allow insiders to trade, all the investors around the world who are pouring billions of dollars into the American stock market, right after the Boski matter no less, they'll all lose confidence, they'll all pull out of the stock market, terrible economic calamity. Well, there's some very good studies, notably by Professor Benston at the University of Rochester, indicating that this market confidence argument is utterly nonsense, that it has no bearing whatever on the participation or lack of participation of individuals in the stock market. They come in and go out depending on how much they recently made or lost. When the market takes a big turn down, lots of people leave the market and vice versa. Uh, so it's uh, simply another of many arguments that has no basis. The uh, uh, <coughs> final argument, and it's, it's simply the, it's the refuge of people who have nothing left. Uh, I characterized it uh, many years ago in, in the book, because it was around then, as uh, it was taken from the reaction of a student of mine in a law class, when I explained some of this, uh, some of the economics of this, she banged her fist on the desk and said, I don't care what you say, it's just not fair. Well, that's precisely where the SEC is today. There is literally no argument they have except to say, I don't care what you say, I don't care how logical it is, I don't care how strong the arguments are, I don't care how good the empirical evidence is on your side, it's not fair. Well, I tell my teenage children that I cannot argue with them about fairness, that fairness really isn't what's at stake, either with my teenagers or with the SEC. Uh, the SEC, among other things, was not created by Congress to be moral supervisors. They were the agency was created to become expert in the economics of regulation. We used to call these economic regulatory agencies. I think that got too embarrassing to the SEC and they dropped it. One of the strongest arguments that something funny is going on here is the fact that over and over, many times over the years, I have asked people from the SEC who strongly back this enforcement, why don't you let people contract out of it? I'll let your rules stand, but why don't you let the companies that would 
choose to try something different, do so. What, what can possibly be the harm? If you disclose that you have a different rule and you voluntarily entered into it with a shareholder vote and all that, well, you just get mumble mumble and uh, no response. Uh, I think that's a giveaway that there are some interests behind the enforcement of these rules that go far beyond any moral arguments, fairness arguments, or anything else. Because if fairness were the question, there couldn't be any argument against allowing people to contract out of it. Now, before coming to that uh, penultimate uh, bottom line, there is one other argument that I think is very important and is getting a little bit distorted by the Boski matter. Uh, and that is that it is impossible. In a large measure, it's logically impossible, but as an empirical matter, it's still substantially impossible for the SEC significantly to enforce this rule anyway. Now, that's why they love the Boski matter, and I think that's why they gave a lot of the fanfare they did, because a number of uh, commission spokespeople said, they said we couldn't enforce the law. Look what we're doing. We aren't looking at anything. You can't know how much of it is going on from looking at one prosecution or two prosecutions or even 30 or 40 that were probably up to a year. There is every indication that this is a massive force and that the kinds that are illegal are indistinguishable from the kinds that are legal. Take, for instance, the idea of someone who owns shares, who gets information that the shares are going to go up in price, and as a result, decides not to sell the shares. No transaction has taken place. The exact same economic consequences, there are fewer shares on the market. If there's a price effect, it'll show up from that just as much as if the person had, on the other side of the transaction, gone into the market to buy the shares. Uh, and yet you can't enforce a rule simply because someone changed their mind. Well, I think there have been people at the SEC who would like to enforce such rules. Who are the beneficiaries of this? Who have an interest in having the SEC tell, first of all, back in the good old days, real insiders in corporations uh, that they shouldn't trade on information that they have, and more recently, other people out in the street uh, who are garnering this information one way or another, who has an information, a benefit from that enforcement besides the moralists at the SEC and those with political uh, interests in retaining positions? I think it's very substantial. From the beginning of the securities regulation in, the 19, uh, in th 1933 and then the Exchange Act in 34, there is one industry in America that has absolutely approved every major thing the SEC does, and that's the investment bankers. Somehow we had the idea for many years that the SEC was charmed that it wasn't like these other agencies. Even after Ralph Nader got the word that the old Federal Power Commission was in the business of protecting the natural gas producers and that uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission was protecting the railroads and there was a general theme developed, uh, well developed by the public choice specialists, 
the SEC was always outside of it. No one saw that there was an industry that was being benefited and protected from competition, which is largely what agencies do when they regulate an industry, and that was the investment bankers. Think about it for a minute. Every single piece of information that ultimately is impacted into the price of shares is done in the main through transactions in shares. And who handles those transactions? Obviously, investment banking houses with uh, large interest in brokerage business and, and uh, financial advisory services. If they can stop that information from being utilized by anyone previously, it's worth more when they get it. Ultimately, it has to come through them. Consequently, if they can get the SEC to stop other people from using that information first, it's worth more to them. Now, you don't hear that argument very often. I don't think most investment bankers understand it. I know that, uh, to my knowledge, possibly two people at the SEC ever understood it. I think it's clearly operating. And it's, it'd be very surprising, once you understand the logic of the economics there, not to understand that those guys on Wall Street aren't fools. They aren't moralists. They aren't sitting there saying, we needed the SEC because there were really too many bad people in the, on Wall Street beforehand. Uh, that's not it. There's something a lot more going on. There are other, other uh, indications as well of uh, agency protection of that industry, but they're not uh, part of the insider trading thing. Well, I said the thing got very important with Boski. I happen to believe that prior to Boski, the posturing of the SEC really didn't make much difference. They couldn't enforce the thing significantly, so they couldn't really interfere with the efficiency of the market. There was a little bit of redistribution, uh, reallocation of wealth, but it wasn't serious. The Boski thing did something else. It used insider trading as a vehicle to regulate something that the SEC theretofore had been militantly neutral on, and correctly so and that's the whole field of hostile takeovers. The SEC had said we don't need any more legislation. As a matter of fact, they had been strangely neutral even about the Williams Act initially, which was one of the uh, strange acts of all times. I would, uh, rel relative to the discussions earlier, I think as a matter of uh, statutory interpretation, that it would be well to have a rule for the courts that any law is inherently suspect that has the name of a convicted felon attached to it. <laughs> Clearly, the whole business of takeovers could not transpire without people benefiting from inside information. If I'm a takeover artist, a raider, or call them what you will, as soon as I formulate the idea that the XYZ company is my next target, at that very moment, I have valuable information. Now, if I go into the market and start buying up the shares, which I must do in order to succeed at the takeover, in one respect, there, there is no difference between that and any other kind of information that's being traded on as far as the economic consequences of the thing are concerned. The Williams Act fully understood that underlying the whole takeover thing, which the Williams Act was designed to, to deter, 
was insider trading. In effect, what they said after uh, start at 10%, then they went to the 5% level, they liked it so much. They said when anyone acquires 5% of the shares, they have to disclose that they're going to have uh, a takeover. In other words, let everybody in on it. Well, without going into technical details of it, I think what happened is that law was every bit as effective as the backers of it who reached Senator Williams uh, wanted it to be. And I think some way had to be found to protect us against a law that was going to absolutely ruin the whole corporate system by, by uh, wrecking the best device ever invented for getting rid of inefficient managers. The Williams Act can be viewed as an insider trading law. What it says is you can't buy with your information any more, longer, any more than 5% of the shares. After that, you have to tell everybody. What I think happened, whether it was a result of an explicit agreement, which is possible, but I, I, I don't know, and the SEC doesn't seem to be telling us yet, uh, or whether it was just an implicit thing that evolved in the marketplace, I think that the takeover, the raiders, uh, the offerers like Icon and Jacobs and Posner and others realized that there had to be someone like Boski out there getting those shares for them, assembling the number of shares they needed, taking the risk that they could be gotten together at the right price. Now that meant that Boski and other ARBs had to have information about uh, whether or not there was a takeover. That's what this whole business is about and by going at Boski on the insider trading basis if in fact it were really effective to stop everyone else, which uh, luckily it's not, if in fact it were, it would effectively mean the demise of takeovers. That's the serious matter that we're now confronting with insider trading, not any moral issue about misuse of information. Thank you. Sorry to be so humorless. I'm sure that the uh, the first question addressed to you is going to be to tell one of your insider trading jokes, and I, I hope you will. Uh, a late but very welcome addition to our uh, panel is Commissioner Joseph Grunfest of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, he is here uh, to defend the proposition that his job should continue to exist, <laughs> and perhaps to tie into another question of whether his job is constitutional. Commissioner? Thank you. Hello, I'm the ogre. Um, as, as to whether my job should continue to exist, I guess if you abolished it, I could go to Wall Street, get a job as a first-year associate, make a little bit more than I'm making now, so I wouldn't, wouldn't actually complain all too much. I'd like to talk very specifically about an efficiency rationale for a federal rule against insider trading, and I'd like to give it a particularly federalist twist. No fairness arguments, no public confidence arguments, no morality arguments. I wouldn't know how to define fairness even if I wanted to. I wouldn't know how to define morality in this context even if I wanted to. And with regard to public confidence, I think people in the market have confidence in that which appears to make them money. Uh, accordingly, I'm not exactly sure where you would get into the public confidence argument very much either. I'd also like to share with you very much the perspective that I believe very firmly that on average and over time markets really are smarter than regulators and that's something that's brought home to me every morning when I shave. 
Let me start by observing that the history of insider trading is a very interesting but short one. Insider trading as a practical matter is a federal common law concept. Section 10B of the 34 Act makes it a violation to engage in certain practices that contravene commission regulations. All right, now the commission's rule 10B-5 prescribes fraud and manipulative transactions, but nowhere does it define insider trading. The question of what is insider trading, what is a violation of Rule 10b-5, is a question that has been slugged out on a case-by-case -case basis before the federal courts. The SEC certainly has gone into court, and it's certainly made some arguments that I'm not very proud of in the past, but the law is judge-made. It is part of the federal common law. As Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote in Blue Chip, Rule 10b-5 is a judicial oak that has grown from little more than a legislative acorn. All right, the SEC has certainly taken positions with regard to what that rule should mean and how the law of insider trading should evolve, but it has never said what it is. It has persuaded courts, and just as importantly, it's been beaten down and beaten back by the Supreme Court at least twice in Dirks and in Chiarella on very important cases. Therefore, I think that might cast a little bit of a different perspective on the evolution of this law. As, as most of you are, I'm certain, aware, there's a substantial Posnerian view that the common law tends towards efficiency over time, and that if you let the common law process work its way out, the rules that the common law generates will be efficient rules. Well, now, if that's the case, we have an interesting situation over here. Either the insider trading rule is somehow efficient, I mean, after all, it is the product of a federal common law, or insider trading is an exception to that rule, that federal common law tends to be efficient, but insider trading doesn't fit that, that pattern, then we'd have to ask the interesting question of why would that be an exception to the rule, or the rule isn't really much of a rule, and the common law really isn't very efficient at all. Um, and, and that, I think, puts the, the question of the evolution uh, of insider trading in somewhat of a different perspective. Let me, let me give you my perspective on the situation. I think the case law in the lower courts certainly is confused. I think all the law review articles agree, and you can find many uh, cases that suggest that, uh, I think, quite clearly. And the Commission has in the past certainly made some arguments with which I would very strongly disagree. Uh, most notably, I think the parity of information arguments uh, that were very uh, healthily rejected by the Supreme Court in Dirks and Chiarella. Uh, I, uh, I think the, the imposition of the requirement of a duty uh, certainly made a lot of sense, and as Professor Manny properly observed, uh, to call a man a fiduciary is but to begin the analysis in that regard, uh, and that's what I'd like to do in this context, to begin the analysis and try to suggest an efficiency rationale for, for why we might have a rule against insider trading. I can make the argument one of two ways. I can either do sort of a formal principal agency analysis with uh, moral hazard problems, uh, with, with uh, uh, different degrees of risk aversion and the like, or I can do the analysis in the form of property rights. Uh, and since Professor Manny already alluded to the property rights approach, I will uh, stay within his mold. Uh, information is property. I think people in this room probably understand that as well as anyone else. We have patents, we have copyrights, we have trademarks, and we also recognize the notion of trade secret. And it's very efficient that we have property rights and information. Insider information, all right, uh, meaning, meaning information that's non-public and material information, can be viewed as a trade secret 
uh, type of information and trading on that information without the consent of the party that develops that information is a taking of property without consent, just as is infringement of a patent, just as is uh, copying in violation of a copyright or the taking of a trademark. Uh, or, or if I were a law professor and I went to a seminar and I heard a paper given by someone else and I said, that's a great idea. I'll go out and I'll publish it uh, under my own name and I'll try to get uh, credit for it. Um, you can also come up with an example for, for, for instance, of say a chemist who steals a secret process and puts it to use in a market where the employer does not compete. And in that example, uh, we'd have to ask, should there be a rule against that type of taking of a trade secret information by the employer? That doesn't answer the question with regard to the contractarian approach. Why don't we just write contracts and we let people decide uh, whether they will or won't uh, engage uh, in insider trading or allow that to occur? Well. I think it's important to recognize that with the imposition of the notion of duty, we in a sense are close to that point uh, through the evolution of the common law anyway. If you have a situation where the creator of inside information says to someone, here's the information and oh by the way you can go trade on it, uh, I can imagine serious litigation difficulties in any case where the SEC would want to argue that that would be a violation of 10b-5. There's no law squarely on point. I don't want to suggest that I'm taking a position, but I could imagine that there would be a very serious argument before any judge where that was the fact pattern. Now, why is it that we have rules in this area? Uh, why don't we just allow it to contracting? I think there are two reasons. First, the government has a very strong comparative advantage in monitoring in this area. Second, the government also has a very strong comparative advantage when it comes to optimal enforcement. With regard to monitoring, clearly you could have private monitoring, just as you have ASCAP and BMI that run around and check uh, who is uh, broadcasting which song on radio and therefore uh, owes what amount of a royalty. However, experience shows that there are easy ways of evading that kind of monitoring in the insider trading area. For example, offshore bank accounts can be quite effective under the appropriate circumstances, and the government, as a practical matter, has a comparative advantage that simply is not available. Uh, clearly that leaves another question which I can't answer. I don't know the answer to that, and that's what's the optimal amount of monitoring by the government even though it has uh, a comparative advantage. I don't think there is any information on that. And with regard to enforcement, why don't we leave the enforcement issue directly to private parties? There I think if you're familiar with the calculus of optimal deterrence, you realize that the, the optimal penalty is a measure of social harm inversely related to the probability of detection. The dollar amounts and the probabilities of detection in these cases quickly bump you into what economists call the bankruptcy constraint. Uh, so unless you can impose a penalty that is different than and other than a simple monetary penalty that can be imposed in a contractual norm, you have suboptimal deterrence. That is, in this context, a, a uh, rationale, strictly economic rationale, for the existence of uh, uh, criminal sanctions. And ver very briefly, let me like try to make uh, two, a couple of observations with regard to Dean Manny's arguments having to do with uh, insider trading as compensation arrangements and the pricing efficiency that results from insider trading. First, I think it can be formally demonstrated that the class of situations under which an insider trading agreement is part of a dominant compensation arrangement, an agency principal relationship, would be very, very small. In other words, two parties contracting of their own free will ex ante 
will in general agree to forbid insider trading, particularly if insider trading can be monitored with absolutely no cost. Um, second, with regard to the pricing argument, um, I think it's one interesting observation in a sense is that the argument almost proves too much. It presumes that getting information to the market sooner is automatically better. Well, I think that's wrong. I think there's an optimal point at time where information comes to market. You can have information come to the market too soon, just as not come to the market too late. Prior release of information can, for example, uh, kill a merger deal that would be very good for all parties involved in the transaction. Take the facts of Texas Gulf Sulphur. If information leaked to the market about the uh, ore strike in Timmins, Ontario, then the company that invested in trying to find those minerals wouldn't be able to buy up the surrounding acreage at uh, the lowest possible price, and the incentives to engage in exploration would be uh, diminished by that amount. Uh, I think the party that is best able to determine the optimal point for disclosure is the management of the company, and if we leave that kind of a rule, we quickly go to a rule of law that would suggest that as soon as management knows any material information, that it should be required to disclose the information simply because it's material. If it's material, it'll move the price. The sooner you get the information to the market, uh, the more it'll move the price. And, and that, I think, proves far, far too much. Uh, I could go on. I won't. Uh, I'd like to hear from the other members on the panel. Thank you very much. Uh, in the finest traditions of the Reagan administration, we have now blamed insider trading uh, on the courts. So it's appropriate that we have a judge to, uh, to follow on here. Our next panelist is uh, Judge Pasco Bowman of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Judge. It's, uh, it's true that this is federal common law, but I'm happy to say that none of it was made in the Eighth Circuit. <laughs> at least not recently, and maybe never. Like Judge Bork, I, uh, I bring a tablet. And unlike Brad Reynolds, or I guess like Brad Reynolds, I'm not Moses. And that's, that's too bad, because I've really got you where I want you. Five o'clock on, uh, on the last day after two long days, and you've heard some minor leaguers like Justice Scalia and Judge Bork and Professor Lino Gralia and Judge Easterbrook and Dean Manny, uh, just to name a few, and I won't go on because I'd be, uh, I'd be sliding uh, someone. I guess it just shows I really know how to pick my spot on the program, and I've got to say I'm really glad, or I'm really grateful to the uh, Federalist Society for uh, uh, this particular spot on the program. I've been very interested in the comments that uh, have been made on uh, insider tr uh, trading. I, uh, I don't really think I need to say much about that because uh, I, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with Dean Manning uh, in every respect. I think he's, uh, I think he's got it right. Uh, where's the uh, societal harm from insider trading? There appears to be none. On the other hand, there appears to be a uh, societal benefit from insider trading. So instead of discouraging it, we uh, ought to be encouraging it, I, I should think. Um, the point has been made that the SEC has a comparative advantage in monitoring insider trading, and I probably would tend to agree with that. But if the thing ought not to be done, 
uh, then comparative advantage in doing it really becomes irrelevant. And so too, I think, uh, irrelevant are the arguments based on, uh, based on the idea of uh, what, what sort of scheme will affect the best kind of deterrence. If we really ought not to be deterring what is, what is being done, then arguments based on who and what can best deter it really become uh, rather irrelevant. Um, getting back to the point that uh, this is federal common law, and, and uh, Joe made the point that uh, this, is, this is common law, but it's a funny kind of common law. It's a common law that, uh, true, it's been made by judges, but it's been made by judges at the behest of an administrative agency. Uh, that's not the real common law to me. Uh, after all, when you think about the great common law tradition and the principles of contract and property and tort that emerged out of that tradition. Those are principles that uh, liberate people and set them free and that protect important personal and property interests. Whereas what we've got here in the insider trading rules is legislation rules that say, thou shalt not, don't do it, and if you do it, bad things are going to happen to you. That really, I would submit, is not the common law tradition. That is much more akin to some sort of legislative enactment of a, a punitive sanction. And that, uh, to my way of thinking, is not what the common law tradition is about. I think it's interesting, too, to consider this, uh, the, the morality of insider trading, or perhaps perhaps some thoughts concerning the, uh, the, the moralistic view of insider trading is a better way of putting it. And this very example has already been, uh, been alluded to, the basic Texas Gulf Sulphur case, big mineral find up in Canada, but we don't want anybody to know about it. Companies under no duty to say anybody to anything and they're perfectly free to go out and acquire mineral rights and whatever they need from these unsuspecting owners without telling them anything. And the law not only does not discourage that, it really promotes that. We see that as being an economically good thing. It's a way in which the company can put together the, the assets that it needs in order to exploit this find in a way that will be economically efficient and good for society. But consider further in that same scenario, if same, same facts were out there busy, busily buying up mineral rights, but if an insider buys stock on the undisclosed information, the law slams the insider with the principle that it just isn't right. But what's the difference? Why is it okay for the corporation to buy land and mineral rights on undisclosed information but not for the insiders to buy shares on the same un undisclosed information. There may be a distinction here that I'm not seeing, but well, there it is. I, 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 I don't see it. It's very hard for me to see one. Further, is there any distinction between the two cases in terms of economic or social effects? Again, it's hard to see one. 
In neither case does it appear that any harm is done. And in fact, in both cases, it appears very likely that some, that some good has been done. And in any event, it seems to me that the uh, proponents of this kind of regulation have yet to make their case that there is any demonstrable harm uh, to the marketplace in general or to any particular uh, shareholders from this kind of activity. And I think, I think Dean Manny has, has uh, demonstrated that virtually beyond question. It seems to me that the really serious charge that is leveled against insider trading is that somehow it, it undermines investor confidence. That's the, probably the most serious charge. Dean Manny has already spoken eloquently to that, so I don't need to spend any time on that. You'll, you'll be grateful for that. Uh, few words about uh, takeovers. Obviously, we're not talking about uh, the antitrust implications of takeovers and mergers, putting those aside, and I wish, I wish we could put antitrust aside, uh, do we need <laughs> do we need, do we need any additional restrictions on takeovers? One way it seems to me of thinking about this question is in terms of, of change and our attitudes toward change. Uh, yesterday, Professor Sowell brilliantly made the point that in the realm of constitutional interpretation, the question is not whether we're going to have change, but rather what kind of change is it going to be? Whose change is it going to be? And I think we have that same kind of question to confront when we think about takeovers. The question becomes whether we are to have a change that is impeded and shaped and influenced by a governmental tilt in favor of the status quo or whether we are to have change shaped and determined by freely operating market forces. And that, I would submit, is the fundamental policy choice a choice between restrictive regulation on the one hand or market determination on the other. So as I've already said, I think the proponents of protective regulation in this area have a very heavy burden. Basically, it's, uh, their, their problem, it seems to me, is who needs protection? The, the case, uh, seems to me, uh, has not been made. Are takeovers bad for shareholders or bad for the economy? Lots of studies have been done attempting to prove that. I think it's fair to say that none of those have even come close to proving the case. Now, in passing, and Dean Manny has touched on this in, in a very general way in his comments about his, his general views concerning the SEC, uh, a general concern I have about disclosure requirements generally in the securities field is that they may very well have the effect of increasing transaction costs without any commensurate benefit to investors. What I mean by this is how many investors whom you know or their brokers who in most cases tell the, tell the investors what to buy actually study the prospectus. Uh, 
I don't know anybody who does that, but then I don't, I don't know many high rollers, so that probably uh, doesn't count. Uh, that's just a passing thought, and it's off our general subject of, of takeovers. The point, it seems to me, is that there's been no demonstration that, uh, that uh, shareholders get hurt by tender offers. Generally, they are happy to sell for a, uh, for a nice premium over current market price. And uh, this, this usually works out well for everybody, and few are heard to complain, except, of course, incumbent management, which, which uh, may, have to, may have to prepare some resumes. Do takeovers harm the economy? Uh, again, I don't, think, I don't think the case has been made. Uh, takeover bids simply don't occur unless the, the shark out there on the prowl senses that the tuna is undervalued and that with sharper management or uh, restructuring or repositioning or whatever could be made more productive. And also in passing, I would, I would suggest to you, could any activity that produces such a wonderful vocabulary, sharks and tunas and white knights and shark repellent and poison pill, it, it, it's wonderful. Could anything, could anything that much fun really be bad? Uh, well, anyhow, we, we, in these situations, we have obviously a case in which the shark sees a management problem in the, uh, in the, tar in the uh, target company, a management that's vulnerable, and he believes he could manage that company's assets better than the incumbent management is doing. If the shark is right about that, then the takeover will result in the more efficient use of economic resources and an increase in the wealth of society. And society is the net gainer, and Dean Manny has already elaborated on that, so I will, I will not belabor it. Now, of course, incumbent management can hardly be expected to appreciate this. I mean, it can't be any fun to be ousted unceremoniously from the boardroom and the executive suite with only whatever contractual rights you have against, against your company, including the ever popular golden parachute for solace. Should the law be concerned about that discomfort? I would, I would think not now. Now, of course, I realize that uh, it's easy for me to say that as someone who has life tenure, but, but in my defense, I thought the same way before I had life tenure. And you'll just have to take that on faith, I really did. It's also argued, and you see this quite a lot in some of the, some of the literature, not so much the scholarly literature as in, um, as in some of the popular stuff that's written on takeovers. It's argued that uh, communities suffer as a result of the uh, dislocations that occur after the new management takes over. There may be plant closings, uh, the corporate headquarters may move from city A to city B, uh, that kind of thing. And this, this is hard on the community that loses out. Uh, of course, it isn't only from takeovers that such things occur. Uh, decisions to close plants, to move corporate headquarters, etc., are made all the time in the interest of managing the assets and pursuing business in a more efficient way. 
Uh, hard as it is, uh, dislocations are sometimes necessary for the sake of productivity. So although it's sometimes unpleasant to, to, to view this kind of uh, reshuffling, as some very wise man once said, and I wish I could remember who it is, but uh, it was once said, we are not yet rich enough to despise efficiency. And that was said quite some time ago, but I think clearly it's still true today. And as I've, I've mentioned already, these kinds of things happen with some regularity, whether there's, a, whether there's been a hostile takeover or not. Uh, businesses go bust, uh, plants get closed or moved, uh, management decides that the uh, corporate headquarters needs to be relocated. Some of you may be familiar with, uh, with uh, something bad that's happened to one of my favorite southern towns, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It's recently been announced that the corporate headquarters of R.J. Reynolds Industries, Inc., if you can believe this, is moving from, from Winston-Salem to Atlanta. And that's not the result of a hostile takeover. It's any, if anything, it's the result of a friendly takeover in which RJR acquired Nabisco. And now all the Nabisco people want to be in Atlanta, and they've sort of become the tail that wags the dog, so off they go to Atlanta. So why should we seek to restrict takeovers on this basis? The point's obvious, and enough, enough of that. To do so would make neither legal nor economic sense. Uh, it does seem to me that the push for protective legislation designed to thwart takeovers uh, stems from what I'll call a misguided preference for maintaining the status quo in terms of which managers manage what assets. And it seems to me that rather than succumb to that pressure, the law should seek to protect instead the interest of shareholders in making the best deal they can when they elect to sell their shares and to protect the interest of society in the more efficient use of scarce resources. Now one final point and then I'm, I'm done. You've been very patient. I do want to mention the green mail problem. There's a great deal of moral outrage about green mail and I think it tends to affect uh, thinking about, about takeovers. The first point I would make is that, uh, you know, whether we like green mail or don't like it, it does not diminish society's ass. I guess you all know what green mail is. The, uh, the acquirer doesn't get enough shares to take control, or he doesn't pursue it long enough to get enough shares to take control, and so incumbent management of the, the tuna simply buys him out at a nice profit and it, you know, a lot of money changes hands and a great deal of money is made by takeover artists this way. The first point is that green mail does not diminish society's assets. It merely shifts some of those assets from one pocket to another. And so from that standpoint, the law ought to be indifferent about this as long as the shifting doesn't take place as a result of something that we would recognize as, as real criminal activity, the point of a gun and, and that sort of thing. So except for the moral outrage occasioned by the uh, specter of a, uh, of a shark, name your favorite shark, making a killing, there isn't any economic loss and there may well be a gain. 
since there's a good chance the recipient of the green mail will invest his gains in a more productive way than those assets would otherwise have been invested. And in any event, only if you postulate that on the average, uh, the sharks who get the green mail will employ those gains less productively than they would be employed otherwise is there an economic problem here. And that postulate, I would submit, almost certainly does not correspond with what really happens. Um, it seems to me that the serious concern with green mail ought to be the effect that green mail has on the target company and its shareholders. Here they are, the war's over, they won, but my God, what a victory, because their management has shelled out all this dough to protect its position and to buy off the shark. So there we are, we've won, but, but we won at a great cost. And to the extent that corporate assets have been used to resist the takeover and then to supply the green mail to the unsuccessful, unsuccessful in a limited sense takeover artist, uh, the company has mortgaged its future and is left in a uh, weakened condition. Just a couple of points about that. First of all, if, if the shareholders have approved the use of company assets to resist the takeover and to pay the green mail, then they don't have any basis for complaint. They've done it to themselves. On the other hand, if corporate assets were used by management for this purpose without shareholder approval, then it seems to me that the answer to take care of that situation lies not in any kind of regulation, but in the great 19th century principles of equity that have something to say about this, that speak to the concept of fiduciary duty and if, if applied intelligently, at least in many of these cases, uh, would make the offending incumbent management subject to a shareholder suit to make the company whole. Uh, I do thoroughly agree with Frank Easterbrook, who for one has written on this subject, the duty of directors and officers to the shareholders whose interests they are employed to serve. Um, final caveat, I'm speaking to you today sort of as a visitor from another planet, not as a federal judge, and anything I have said today is not to be taken as any indication of how I would ever rule in any case that might come before me. My chief judge made me say that. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Judge Bowman. Now the, uh, the man who is in the, in the, the truly uh, most desirable spot uh, of the entire affair, uh, Professor Saul Levmore of the University of Virginia, uh, who is this year visiting uh, at the birthplace of the Federalist Society Yale Law School. Professor Levmore. I must say I have a little uh, bit of a feeling here of being part of a tag team match. Um, Dean Manny gets up, and later on in the show, he sort of tags Judge Bowman, and they agree with each other. And I'm sitting there wondering what I'm doing, but fortunately, my, my partner turns out to be Commissioner uh, Grunfest, and uh, he, he'll come along and tag me. Meanwhile, the referee, I guess, as usual, in his striped shirt, sits there while people uh, do anything they want, calling each other fiduciary duties and uh, <laughs> things like that. But <clears throat> I guess that's uh, part of the game. 
Well, uh, I too would like to, uh, to point out that efficiency arguments run both ways and that there's a more than a respectable, indeed I think a convincing case to be made that we should not run out and uh, hug insider trading as if it's the best thing to come down the pike. And that's not to say that I disagree with everything that um, two of the speakers have said. I think certainly our society perhaps ought to let people contract out of, out of almost any rule that, people, that private parties want to contract out of. I think that our society is probably insufficiently attuned to the advantages of takeovers and a little bit too quick to protect local uh, symphony orchestras and uh, the rust belt or, what ha or whatever the motivations are for desiring some of this litigation. But that's not to say, or one cannot go very quickly to saying that, well, all insider trading is terrific because it really pushes prices in the correct direction and uh, so forth. And uh, to explain my point of view, and perhaps the commissioners as well, uh, let me just uh, back up a minute and say something that I think everybody on the panel would agree with, namely that there are at least two things that are pretty good that we would like to have more of if only they were not in any sort of tension with each other. The first is the usual information. Everybody likes more information rather than less information. The more we know about what's going to happen tomorrow, the more efficient our judgments can be today and our spending decisions, our investment decisions, and so forth. On the other hand, everybody, or at least everybody in this room, loves property rights. The more you get a return on your investment, the more likely you are to work hard and invest, the more likely you are to be an entrepreneur rather than a lawyer, and, and, and so forth. The problem, of course, is, or I say of course because I think this is self-evident, the problem is these cases are interesting, mergers are interesting, insider trading disputes are interesting, because these two goods are often in conflict with one another. In just the very simple case, in the abstract, property rights aside, we would just love it if every corporation in America would tell us today what it plans on doing for the next few months. It would be more information, more information is good, property rights being held constant. We could all go out and know whether to buy a car today or wait two months for the new model. We would know whether to buy things now or wait for new copper to be discovered. But of course life's not that simple. Because if we required all corporations to tell us everything, to tell us about their mineral discoveries in Ontario and so forth, then of course they in turn would have less incentive to go out and invest in copper or explore and hire geologists and uh, so forth. Now I think you have to see inside of trading rules as a social decision about how to resolve this tension. N not that it can be resolved, I mean, how to strike a balance in this tension between always wishing that we could force more information out of parties in order for the rest of us to behave more efficiently, and yet realizing that often when we extract information, the people that we extract it from have less of an incentive to do whatever it is that they were doing that we want information about. Now, the model that our society has picked is this well-known 10b-5. I say our society because the judges are us and, and so forth. But the model that our society has temporarily picked, let us say, is this sort of well-known disclose or abstain model, which I think picks a middle course. And like all people who say middle course, it's because I sort of think it's not such a bad idea, and therefore everything else is sort of extremist positions. But, but let me go on and explain what I, mean, what I mean by that. The way to think about it, I think, is to think of the extremes. On the one hand, we have what might be called the free market regime to make it look good. But I, I guess one could just as well call it the completely unregulated regime, or what I fondly call, usually only in the privacy of my own room, the sort of the shoplifting regime, on grounds that in some sense we could have this rule about all acts. Perhaps shoplifting is a very good thing, 
People might, who go to stores and work hard to evade the sort of eyes of the store owner, might really be the people to whom resources are to flow to, that have the highest valued uses and so forth. A respectable case, I suppose, could be made, well, a not so respectable case could be made, that shoplifting is not altogether bad, there might be some good thing about it, but again, there are monitoring advantages to the government and so forth, and some government entity, hopefully not the SEC, but some government entity will have the good sense to stop shoplifters. Now, now by the way, as, as I think Dean Manny would be the first to agree, we can't touch the tip of that iceberg. There is so much shoplifting out there, but that doesn't prove that it's a good thing. We try to stop the few people we catch, and when we catch them, as most of us know from our youth, bad things happen. <laughs> Bad things happen to us, and presumably this deters a little bit of shoplifting, improves the investment to set up a store, lowers prices for everybody, and so forth and so on. And the regime has some good things about it. Prices move in the right direction, and all of the good things that have been said about it. On the other hand, we could have a regime that really encouraged more information. Now let me explain this part uh, rather slowly. There is a very serious disadvantage, I think, to the completely unregulated also known as free market, also known as shoplifting regime. There is a very serious disadvantage to this regime. Would that it would not be there, but I think it is there. And it is as follows. If you are an insider, it is obviously to your advantage under this regime to have more opportunities to trade rather than not to trade. As such, when you have information that you are thinking of disclosing to the public, that you have now found copper and you are exploring it, information like that, there is some moment at which you, as an agent of your, as, of your shareholders, would like to reveal this information. But, the optimal moment, as it was called before. But, if every moment that you withhold the information from the marketplace adds moments in which you now have an area in which you can commit insider trading, because this by hypothesis is allowed under the regime, then obviously information will come out of corporations much more slowly. I mean, the argument can be made much, much stronger by saying that as a manager you would even have an incentive to head the company into fields in which it's likely to come up with things that are very secret, even though the, on average the value of those investments might be lower. But I don't want to push the argument all that far, although people schooled in economics better than I can sort of push it there. But the central idea is that if when you reveal information, it's over. I mean, your inside trading advantage is over. It obviously pays to slow down the exit of information from the corporation. And in turn, this holding back of information is inefficient in the first sense that we would like more information rather than less. In short, the management has no reason to reveal, in an insider trading world, the manager has no reason at all to let go of information at exactly that speed that is the right one necessary for the protection of the property rights of the corporation. Now I know that's sort of a long and, and difficult way to say it, but there are enough nods in the room that I'll, that I'll take it that somehow this is going a month, many more nods than you got, I might add. <laughs> but, um, it's funny, it's wrong. Yes, well, may, maybe. And that, more information. And um, That's right. And um, <clears throat> Now, once you see that, by the way, I will return to a second disadvantage that I think we tend to underestimate about insider trading. But just as sort of an aside there, once you see that, you could perhaps see that there actually is another option out there for society. And, and I want to emphasize it's not one that I promote, but I just want to point out why I think the disclose or abstain regime that we live in is actually sort of a middle road. And this other one 
just to try to tie this in somehow to the point of this conference, I guess, you, you might sort of analogize this to the government's ability in the Fifth Amendment, that is what I have in mind, which is I suppose we could also have a regime in which we said to corporations, we just love information, we want more and more of that of you, so please disclose everything you know, and by the way, we are very sympathetic to the fact that if you disclose, this might ruin your incentive to invest, i.e. destroy the second good of property rights, so we will allow you, through the arm of the state, through the Fifth Amendment sort of imagined process to go take properties from these farmers next to the copper mines. And by the way, we will make sure that they get fair compensation and so forth. Now again, I'm not recommending this. I'm just pointing out that one can imagine, indeed our government more or less lives in that world, it's impossible for the government to come up with the interstate highway system or the Hoover Dam in secret. So the government ends up announcing what it's going to do and then taking the land outside of the marketplace with the mess that the Fifth Amendment has. I mean, determining fair value and getting it accurate is very important for efficiency, but is very difficult in real life and so forth, which is no doubt one reason why we don't go that route. But all I want to point out is we could have a route that would lead to much, much more information. By the way, that's, it's not such a crazy route, even though I'm not in favor of it. It's not such a crazy route, because if you think about it, one problem of the unregulated model, the, the shoplifting model, so to speak, is that it does not quite protect the company against things that go on in the world. Uh, speak to investors and speak to local property owners, investors, and everyone. People are always watching for sudden increases or sudden decreases in the price of stock. And if I see that, say, some exploration corporation stock has arisen radically in value, you can bet I will not sell land to that corporation so quickly because I'll begin to imagine that, gee, they may have found something underneath my land and that's why their insider trading and their price is going up. So a regime that allows more and more insider trading does send signals to people out there even though we might like to withhold information. Now the second disadvantage that I see about the extreme regime of the unregulated regime, so to speak, again, the first one being um, this idea that it might encourage the withholding of information well, well past the optimal point of release. The second thing I see is something that, that Dean Manny addressed in his book uh, a few years ago, but I have to say that I, I take a little issue with it and I'd be uh, curious to hear his response. And that is, there is, we like to think of good news because we're optimistic Americans, but there is of course bad news out there in the world too. Not everything that insiders find out about is terrific. Not everything means that the price of stock is going up and that it's time to buy. There are also plenty of bad things that happen, and the insider may know that it's time to sell or sell short or whatever the strategy. And indeed, going back to the way I described this earlier, you can imagine an insider in desperate need or greed for cash thinking, well gee, if only I could create some bad news, then I could really make money by selling stock or selling stock short and so forth. This I see is a very, very serious moral hazard of insider trading, that it can actually pay for insiders working for a company to go through to encourage transactions on the company's part that may actually be in the bad interest of the corporation. In the merger context, this seems to be rather clear and indeed argues for, uh, you know, argues the free market side, so to speak, that is for not encouraging target shareholders to hold things up. If you know that you can make a great deal of money by holding up on an acquisition, it sort of is in your interest to look like a good takeover candidate, i.e. not to do any work for the last few months and, and so forth. But sticking to the insider trading problem, I think this problem of the downside is really a very serious one. Now it has been suggested, well, we could structure employment contracts, those managers will find themselves 
themselves unemployed if they do that. If you do a bad job, people find out about you and get rid of you. Well, all this is true, but as the proponents of the unregulated regime must admit, it's somewhat true. I mean, if it's true that we don't need insider trading rules in order to discourage managers from doing that, then it's also true that we don't need insider trading to encourage their entrepreneurial efforts and their good efforts. If we are good monitors, if we can come up with good compensation arrangements in order to stop people from doing bad things, then it's also true that those are sufficient, I would think, to encourage them to do good things. And so, if we need insider trading, or if it's a useful use of insider trading to reward people who do good work, I think we must then be aware that there's also a danger associated that will encourage people to do uh, bad works. Well, I've been encouraged to shorten my remarks, so I'll only uh, add to this by saying I'm very sensitive to and actually completely agree with the comments about the interaction about the Williams Act, although I guess we can't, by your rule, we shouldn't call it that now. The, uh, the Felony Act um, <clears throat> and insider trading rules. I, I, I'm very uh, sensitive to that. I think it is an area we need to look at a lot more. But to me, that's a problem of the Williams Act. That's a problem in merger law. It's a takeover law problem, which itself is a very interesting problem. We want to encourage a lot of takeovers. We want the market for corporate control to be quite vigorous. On the other hand, we are always a little bit nervous that the target shareholders suffer from group, so-called group coordination problems. If one person's trying to buy a painting and 75 own it, obviously we cannot be so sure without good agency uh, contracts or what have you, we cannot be so sure that this painting is going to move for a good price, i.e. to the highest level use, because the 75 people have a lot of trouble negotiating with one another, and the one has a real advantage, a monopoly sort of advantage, if you will. And I think these problems are there in the takeover game, which explains, I think, why some sensible people are not entirely against defensive maneuvers by target shareholders. But that's not to say that there should be so many defensive maneuvers that the market for corporate control vanishes. Well, I completely agree that that's an interesting area and that perhaps we have our courts or our SEC has erred too much on the side, too much on one side rather than the other. But I do not think that in heading in that direction, we should ignore the fact that there are real downside problems with insider trading and that information itself is really quite a good thing. And information does not mean that security prices are accurate. It means that, but it also, and I would argue much more importantly, means that real prices, the price of bread, the price of land, the price of copper, we also care about those prices being accurate. And the quicker we get information out of the corporations, the more that information, which our economic system needs, will be there and will be correct. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Levmore. Um, I guess we'll try and do something like the same, uh, same system we did before. If there are people who want to go to the different microphones, let's start off here. Yeah, this is uh, addressed to the commissioner, and I, and I regret to say that I don't know how to phrase it without sounding insulting. It is agreed, I think, that billions upon billions of dollars depend upon when and how information is disclosed within the corporate system. And given that, it's very easy for me to see why private individuals within that system would have incentives to develop monitoring and uh, directing institutions that efficiently control that information flow. What I cannot fathom is what is the incentive for a government regulator to develop institutions that monitor and direct that information flow efficiently. Uh, I, I guess to put it bluntly, why should we trust you? How can you not trust a face like this? 
The question, the question is an excellent question. Let me try to break it down into two parts. First of all, it's fascinating to see uh, how ingenious and how creative the private market system is and the extent to which the private market system has already developed uh, itself, itself methods for monitoring and for tracking uh, inside trading violations. For example, the New York Stock Exchange, which is a private organization, it's also a self-regulatory organization, but it's a private organization, has a set of computers that sit online and they look at the trades and they have various uh, delta strings and patterns that they monitor. They have databases that they cross-match and check. Um, and this basically is uh, a combination of the issuer companies and of the investment bankers uh, and of the brokers monitoring to the extent that they can trading behavior that would be suggestive of insider trading. Now the fact that the industry decides itself to pay uh, and this, this includes not just the investment bankers, but includes also the issuers for this type of monitoring activity suggests that they see some value in the collectivization of that effort. Uh, they, they are deciding to do this for themselves. Now, there are some obvious problems that the private sector runs into. Uh, you, all of a, you, you, you follow the information, all of a sudden you get to a point where because you are not a government agency, as a practical matter, you can't get the information uh, out of the Swiss or out of another uh, foreign uh, source, or there are other methods of collecting information that uh, aren't as uh, accessible. Uh, and if I want to use Professor Levmore's analogy, uh, the question is who's got the better cameras in order to find the shoplifters, assuming, of course, that you think shoplifting is, is wrong. Uh, we've got sharper lenses beyond a certain point, uh, but it's valuable to see the amount of money that the private sector spends on its own anyway even though they're at a serious comparative disadvantage. Now, as to the second part of the question, why trust us to do it? Um, number one, if it's right that there should be a government agency doing it, for better or worse, we're it. Uh, the jurisdiction is ours. Uh, what level of enforcement and the like, that's a very, very tough question. Uh, the, the allocation of optimal uh, resources to monitoring activity and agency principal relationships is a tough one. Uh, and you'll get very reasonable people uh, disagreeing about that, and uh, uh, for better or worse, I'm right there in the middle of that disagreement. Would anybody like to comment on, on that response? I should just say one thing. Before I sank to my present position, uh, I practiced in the, in the area of, uh, of uh, securities law and, and takeovers. And uh, I do think there is a serious question with respect to the SEC of the influence that is uh, exerted on it from time to time by, uh, by members of Congress. I recall uh, the opening meeting uh, of an investigation into a major defense contractor where the then director of the enforcement division uh, with his staff, many of his staff, uh, in a room with, uh, with me and my clients said, I want to be uh, upfront with you about this. Sitting in the next room are two staff members from a particular congressman who had an interest in, uh, in the matter. And uh, we're going to have our conversation. As soon as you leave, they're going to come in. And I have no doubt that they will ask uh, what we talked about. And we will tell them what we talked about. Uh, the, and this was at the beginning of an investigation where the, uh, uh, there were congressional oversight, quote unquote, hearings and all the rest of it. Uh, that, uh, one, one, one asks, why do we have a governmental institution uh, like uh, the SEC or the FTC or any of the rest of them that, are, that purportedly are there to uh, provide expert judgment and, and opinion, and yet to be that susceptible to congressional uh, interference seems to me to, to raise a whole host of questions. 
Well, my only observation to that is I know that uh, Chairman Dingell wouldn't agree with that and would say that we're far too obstreperous and the last people we ever listened to are Congress. Um, and uh, I, I guess if we're getting that much flack from all sides, maybe we're, we're, we're treading a relatively reasonable middle course. Go ahead. If I may also uh, comment on the general subject of lawmaking by the SEC, and I, I'm assuming time isn't going to allow a very uh, in-depth in <laughs> discussion of these things, and I want to comment about uh, Saul Levmore's uh, very excellent presentation of a lot of the arguments that are developing in the literature today about property rights and information, the production and allocation of uh, information rights and so forth. Uh, for one thing, we have almost no empirical evidence on any of this. Be that as it may, and regardless of how that issue might be resolved, I would point out to you that never once in the 23 years at least that the SEC has been working on this matter have they ever addressed these questions. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They never had the kind of experts who could even deal with the kind of question that I raised and that Saul raised. All they could do, with the exception of uh, the commissioner to my right and one or two others who have been there, is rant and rave about fairness. It just makes you suspect that something else is involved that's not in the public's interest. That's the real bottom line to Saul's argument that there is a very big cost every time you justify regulation on some technical economic ground, even if you have the empirical evidence. Economists do this constantly. They refuse to factor in the costs of having more regulation, both the costs in freedom and the costs in expansion of regulation and the expansion of power to do things when they don't know what they're doing. And that's the real problem underlying all of this. Speaking of costs, uh, I might tell one, one story. I recall in a situation we were defending a uh, target of a takeover effort, uh, and uh, it came near the time of the annual meeting. Uh, the annual meeting was held and revealed that the, uh, the financials for the, for the last fiscal quarter, that uh, in the course of defending against the takeover, uh, one half of the net profits of the company for that quarter were devoted to paying the lawyers and the investment bankers. Uh, I, have, of course, thought this was good news, but the shareholders had a rather different, uh, rather different view of it. Yes, sir. Well, my question is not really that profound, but I've got this much time invested in it, so I'll go forward. <laughs> uh, I observe how inappropriate we hold it for insider information to be developed and acted on in the market area, but somehow it's quite appropriate for insider information to be, to be developed and acted on on the front page of the Washington Post. Anyone want to take that one? Yes, sir. I have a question uh, for any panelist who'd want to address it as to whether the uh, illegality of insider trading doesn't make the problem worse rather than better uh, on the following theory that uh, if large numbers of people were freed from the fear of penalty and were able to act upon what they know, presumably they'd go into the market and the price would rise to reflect their willingness to pay, that being the value of the information. And if large numbers of people felt freed to do this, putting aside moral considerations that do not 
inhibit everyone, um, then presumably the price would reflect the real value of this, and soon it would no longer be valuable to trade on inside information. What I worry about is that it's this, it's this insider trading principle that makes it so profitable for people like Mr. Bosky. Well, there's a, there's a very short answer to that, um, and that if that's the result you want to get to, the quickest, most efficient, and easiest way to do it is to adopt a rule that says all material information must immediately be disclosed. You don't need insider trading in order to signal to the market. In fact, insider trading is a very, very inefficient and weak way of telling the market what's going on. Because what do you see? You see somebody trading. Uh, Scholes and other people have done studies, and we know that you can move large quantities of shares without moving price very much at all. Rather, it's a, yeah, the block price effect is very, very small. Price elasticity of shares is very, very high, very uh, substitutable in the efficient market. Um, the most effective way, and the reason why prices move is because there's information leakage associated with the identity and the type of trading that's going on. That's how prices move. If we want to get prices to move to where they should be in light of all material information, the cheapest way to do it is to have a rule that says disclose all material information. What would you think about that rule? I would say that uh, in the case of uh, Texas Gulf Sulphur that the uh, corporation would be cheating its stockholders out of the fruit of all of its development efforts. And, but uh, it's okay for the, for the traders to bid up the price and thereby signal the uh, discovery of the ore and drive up the price of the surrounding land. That's okay. Well, I, I'm not altogether sure that the uh, seller of land in Timmins, Alaska is going to be making that deduction from the, any fluctuation in the price of a large corporation well, we, on the New York Stock Exchange. Well, that's the Canadians are stupid argument. Uh. <laughs> I'd like to hear from uh, any other panelists who would want to address that. I, I would comment on the general idea of disclosure. You know, that, that word is like a uh, mantra for security lawyers. Disclosure, disclosure. It's got a ring to it that they love. It's like the ring of a cash register to them. Because while it was sold to the public, as a system of non-regulation. In practice, it hasn't worked out that way. In fact, in good theory, it never could have worked out that way. The idea that simply have a simple rule that requires all material information to be disclosed, then you don't have to have a big regulatory apparatus telling corporations what to do and when to do it. It'll all get done very nicely, and then the market comes in and takes care of everything. It was all very well and good, but as a practical matter, it hasn't worked out that way. As a practical matter, that disclosure philosophy, as reflected in the 33 and 34 acts, in the hands of the SEC, and I think it would have been this way uh, regardless of uh, what agency was enforcing it, turned into a very, very strict regulatory provision. Today, certainly any lawyer knows that the most significant rules that a lawyer dealing with important corporate financial aspects has to contend with are not state corporation law. They're the securities rules, and it's not disclosure. So what you've got here is all the problems of regulation again, an agency that poses to the world, and it's in somebody's political interest to continue it, as experts on the field when there is no expertise in the field. The expertise is merely in manipulating the rules. 
So that uh, it seems to me that the arguments in all of this field just miss the point. This is simply another illustration of what happens when you start on the road to regulation, when you don't have good justification for it, when you know that it's a payoff to some political interest, and we ought to have stricter rules that prevent this sort of thing from happening to us. I, I can't see because of the lights, but that may be Doug Ginsburg back there. It is. It is. Go ahead. Thank you, John. I have. Uh, brief questions, one for uh, Joe and one for Henry. Um, Joe, as I recall, the commission, uh, by a vote in which uh, you concurred, put out a concept release uh, to generate discussion on the possibility that corporations should be able to opt out of uh, various uh, aspects of the current regime, principally uh, uh, the Williams Act. And I wonder uh, what your uh, reaction would be to a proposal that companies be able affirmatively to opt out of the current uh, prohibition on, on insider trading. And then for, for Henry, I would like to know whether the logic of your argument relating to at least the aspect relating to market efficiency wouldn't also suggest that um, government officials be able to trade on inside information about their decisions that are about to affect the value of a, uh, of a publicly traded corporation. Uh, so that, say, the justices of the Supreme Court, uh, before announcing their decision in litigation between you know, MCI and AT&T, uh, could purchase shares in the winning company or short, short the other one. Uh, we wouldn't have Professor Levermore's problem there because uh, they could go with either one. They're not tied into making a decision that will have a result uh, from which they could profit, they can profit from either, uh, from a decision going in either direction. Hi, Doug. <laughs> uh, with regard to the first one, I think that a lawyer would be able to make a very credible argument that there is an opt-out or, or a self-governance exemption already uh, in the uh, insider trading laws, and, and you would craft that argument by looking at Dirks and Chiarella, which says that basically there, there has to be a breach of a fiduciary duty, a taking without consent. If the corporation were to give consent to someone to trade on the basis of the information, uh, somebody could argue that you'd have a hard time uh, showing that there's any breach, ergo a difficult time proving that there's any uh, 10b-5 violation. That, that was that, and that doesn't, that I, I'm comfortable with Dirks and I'm comfortable with Chiarella and I'm comfortable with the requirement that you have to show a uh, breach of, of a duty. Well, can we infer then you would be comfortable with a, an arrangement under which that, that type of opt-out was allowed? My general counsel generally has apoplexy whenever I express any opinion with regard to a, <laughs> uh, a specific fact pattern uh, or the like. I have, I have no trouble saying that uh, uh, I think uh, Chiarella and Dirks, as decided by the Supreme Court, are, are uh, uh, wonderful decisions, even though they rejected positions that were at that time being argued by the SEC. Uh, and I have no, no trouble explaining uh, how uh, a counsel uh, could craft an argument saying that I was given permission to trade uh, by the corporation on the basis of this information, uh, and that uh, therefore I didn't violate 10b-5. I think Mr. Gelzer would have a difficult time if I uh, went any farther, whatever my views on the matter would be. I, I like it when I'm in agreement with Joe. Uh, 
and that last point uh, reinforces my earlier argument that the whole insider trading thing prior to Boski really wasn't terribly much of a problem in any event. Uh, the Supreme Court had dealt very intelligently, I think, with the matter, though it never addressed the central underlying administrative law question of uh, what really happened prior to Texas Gulf Sulphur and in that case. The question you ask about government trading, uh, doesn't that also add to the efficiency of the market? The answer to that is, uh, is yes, it does but that the market efficiency argument never stands alone. None of the whole list of arguments, I think, uh, can stand alone. As actually, I dealt with that issue 20 years ago in, uh, in my book on this subject, that uh, I thought then, and indeed I think now, that government insider trading probably is a more serious matter than private trading. Darn. So, <laughs> It's a way to solve the pain increase well, problem. Interestingly, <laughs> interestingly enough, however, it, uh, it never even surfaces as something that might be happening. One of the reasons we've long suspected that insider trading is fairly significant in generating price changes and so forth is that the simple explanation that there are billions of dollars to be made from this information and that it's peculiar to believe that uh, people would let it go simply slipping through their fingers like mercury and not uh, try to uh, exploit it. I don't think that uh, that much uh, forbearance is consistent with what we know about human nature. I think, however, that the opportunities for making quick money on stock price changes almost pales into insignificance as compared to the opportunities for making money on government behavior in connection with such things as uh, a bolt as building up or lowering the value of the dollar in international currency markets, uh, what's happening with uh, uh, the Fed and interest rates and matters of this sort, not to mention the obvious ones of government contracts, regulatory decisions on uh, drugs and uh, things of that sort all of which produce a lot of opportunity, none of which we ever read about in the paper. It is hard for me to believe that in all the years we've been hearing all these terrible things about the Texas Gulf Sulphur officials and Boski and others, that no government official has ever tried to tap into that trillion, trillion dollar opportunity there. There's a great book that I recommend to anyone interested in this subject. It's by uh, the Columbia historian uh, Fritz Kahn, I believe is the name, called Blood and Iron. It's a biography of Bismarck with special attention to his relations with the Jewish banker Bleichroder. And it was important to say Jewish because because he was Jewish, Bleichroder disappeared from Bismarck's own autobiography. Uh, only when the Bleichroder papers became available in recent years and were uh, worked by a careful historian did we learn what was going on. And what we learned is that Bleichroder, who was a combination SEC, uh, Federal Reserve Bank, uh, and commercial banker for uh, Bismarck, was busy doing all the trades on Bismarck's uh, recommendation about 
based on uh, information coming out of the government that would affect the price of government securities, not merely German, but other securities as well. We even learned that Bismarck moved troops in and up to and back from borders in order to affect the price of government securities so he could trade on them. <laughs> now, the book is replete with literally hundreds of episodes of this insider trading. Uh, there is also uh, a rumor about, it's, I've seen it in writing, though we're going to have to wait some years for uh, John Maynard Keynes' papers to be uncovered to know if there's more to it, that the famous stories of the fortunes that he made for himself and for King's College Cambridge uh, also resulted from disclosures of information by people in the uh, Chancery, the Exchequer in, in London. I strongly suspect that it was true. I strongly suspect that this kind of information utilization goes on today right here in the city. I can find no justification for it. Even though all things being equal, it's not as bad as it would otherwise be because in fact it does have the desirable consequence you mentioned of pushing prices in the right direction. Apart from that, it seems to me that it gives the wrong incentives to government <coughs> officials which is not what happens in corporations, contrary to what Saul said. There is very little reason to believe that the massive forces that operate through the market, particularly the market for corporate control, and also the market for executives, doesn't totally dominate any interest that corporate executives would have to manipulate, other than the so-called end period problem, uh, to manipulate uh, for purposes of insider trading. That's not true with government officials because there's not the same kind of market forces operating. Uh, Henry, I'd just like to observe that I'll, if afterwards I'll give you cases and examples where in insider trading cases that we have brought, uh, the behavior is on the part of these corporate executives is very similar to what you allege is the behavior that we would see in the government area if we allowed insider trading by government officials. Um, so I think what you've got is a situation where you just gave an elegant explanation of the moral hazard problem in a principal agency relationship at the government level. You're trying to distinguish that from situations where that might happen at the corporate level, and I think I'd be able to show that the distinction doesn't wash. With regard to prosecutions of government officials, there's a reported case of an SEC employee who traded on the basis of knowledge that the commission was going to be bringing in action. This was in the late 70s. Uh, there was a criminal conviction there. There is a uh, judge's law clerk, I believe, in South uh, Dakota who was being investigated for trading on the basis of a rate-making decision that he knew about before it came out. And uh, there's also public knowledge about certain actions that have been taken against employees of the Commerce Department uh, who traded on the basis of certain flash GNP estimates in the uh, interest rate markets. Isolated cases, just not the kind of evidence you need for making an intelligent decision about what's going on. We're looking now, for I the, con we're looking for the contra connection. It, it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note, why don't we take one, one more question? Dave? Yes, thanks, John. I just wanted to refer back to the full disclosure rule, which Commissioner Grunfist mentioned briefly, and he indicated that he thought that that might be a rule that would get information into the market with the least cost. I, I don't agree with that rule, by the way. It's just that when, when somebody suggests, my gosh, we should allow insider trading because it moves prices to where they should be, I say to myself, what an expensive way of doing a simple thing. 
Yeah, my question is really more just a consideration in the whole area of a couple different costs that came to mind. Um, one was the cost of government enforcement of such a rule, and the other would be the cost that, that is incurred when you don't assign a property right to information and don't have a single person controlling its highest use. And I was wondering if the panelists would, would comment that on that generally in this area. Well, that's precisely the problem that's involved in the Boski matter. Uh, the, the Williams Act prevented property rights in anything over 5% of the shares. Effectively, it was a little more, but apparently it wasn't enough. Uh, I don't believe that uh, the activists in the uh, market for corporate control, like Icon and uh, Pickens and others, particularly wanted to make Boski and Levine millionaires. I also don't think they were naive, and I don't think that they uh, didn't know what was going on. I think that since the Williams Act prevented them from protecting property rights themselves, the way it was done uh, as a practical matter before the Williams Act, they had to look around for some second best device to be able to function in the market for corporate control at all. And I think you're quite right that uh, we don't even address these things in terms of designing the most efficient set of property rights, particularly in the intellectual property areas such as this. It's very difficult. The problems that Saul was raising are very real problems. But it seems to me that uh, prudence dictates when we really don't know anything about it, keep still until we do, and generally keep regulation out of it, because you're apt to do more harm than good. I'd observe that I think if you want to make sense of what goes on in the insider trading area, perhaps it makes, perhaps it's helpful to analyze it in the context of intellectual property rights much more uh, than under the label of fraud under which it's evolved under 10b-5. If you analyze it as an intellectual property rights problem, for example, you could see that 13d uh, has an effect very similar to the 17-year uh, life of a patent. Uh, you come up with an invention, you're given a monopoly. Uh, as a reward for your inventive activity, but the monopoly lasts only 17 years. Uh, and then anybody can go out there and can use it. Well, 13D has a similar uh, aspect to it. Instead of being measured in time, it's measured by amount of a share accumulation. You're allowed to accumulate up until 5% without telling anybody what your holding is. Once you cross 5%, you have to give the information regarding your position out there to the market. Um, that, I think, is, is a helpful analysis. It doesn't suggest for a moment that 13D is right or wrong, uh, or that uh, there should be a 13D at all, or that it should be shortened uh, or lengthened. Uh, but it does, I think, help in the analysis of what the economic consequences of that rule uh, happen to be. Okay, with that, I'd like to uh, thank the panelists for their remarks today. Um,